Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for that kind words, Robert. Um, I do want to like share with you, I think this is quite a privilege to be able to come up and speak with you, so I don't take that lightly, and I'm very, very appreciative of the opportunity. I do want to thank you all for your prayers. Um, you, you can't underestimate how much that's meant to me and how much I appreciate that. Um, right now my voice is doing pretty well. You may hear me have to clear it a little bit. My throat produces a, a, a mucus that can sometimes clog it up and I may have to clean it up a little bit, so I apologize on that. So, um, but cancer isn't fun, but it's not all bad. I lost 35 pounds and I was kind of fat, so that wasn't a bad thing, right? And um, I, I no longer have any whiskers on my neck and most of my cheeks from the radiation, and my wife seems to appreciate that a lot more than before, so it hasn't all been bad. So, um, <clears throat> But let me open with a quick word of prayer, and, um, and, and then we'll get started, okay? Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, how we just thank you. Thank you so much for your son, Lord, and, but we also thank you, Lord, that you allowed us to come together and fellowship and worship you, Lord, and learn more about you each when we come, but also, Lord, to express our gifts and our love for each other, Lord, and I just thank you for that. Lord, I'd ask that the uh, the words on my mouth be your words today, not my own, and if, if they are mine, that they would soon be forgotten, but Lord, if they're yours, Lord, they would penetrate hearts and also have ears to hear. Lord, I just thank you so much for this day. I ask your blessings throughout for each and every one here and ask this in your son's precious and holy name. I'd like to ask you guys a question. What's the fastest growing religious group in our country today? Any ideas? According to the General Society of Survey Data, Americans claiming no religion, sometimes referred as the knowns or nuns, no, it's not Sally Field when the TV show, the nuns, because of how they answer a question, what's your religious tradition? They now represent in 2022, 30% of the U.S. population. Those exceed the Roman Catholics and the evangelicals, both about 23 and 22% per each. They're composed, yes, of atheists and agnostics, but the majority of them are what I'm going to call the cultural sort of Christians, those Christers, the ones who show up on Easter and, and Sunday, because the vast majority of them asked had come from a previous family Christian tradition. I want you to look at this chart, and it shows you, and this is based only in 2020, but you can see the top two are the Catholics and the uh, evangelicals, and they're, they're declining a little bit. But in the middle, you'll see two of them, right? You'll see the mainline Protestant, boom, they're taking a nosedive there. And then look at the Doe religion. And believe me, that's accelerated. I don't know whether COVID had anything to do with that, but in the last few years, it's accelerated. So that raises a really important question for us as believers. Why do you think that is? Well, Frank Turek, who's a noted apologist, wrote a great book, Faith. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and I'd suggest if you have a young person 
or somebody you know that uh, is struggling with the faith and, you know, oh, I, I, mean, I can't believe in God. It's a great book. I'd encourage you to pick it up. It's with Norm Geisler and, and Frank Turk. But he said this when asked that question. It's because the culture has talked them out of faith and Christians aren't talking them into the Christian faith. So either Christians are not sharing the gospel at all with these folks, or they're not doing it very effectively. Sadly, the data suggests that most Christians cannot coherently articulate the gospel to another person, let alone know how to deliver the gospel in a manner that connects with a non-believer. So again, we've got to ask ourselves, why do you think it's the case that Christians are not obeying their responsibility to share the gospel? And why are they doing it poorly, if they are? Well, I think first and foremost, it's a lack of biblical understanding of the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, probably many of you can relate to this. I mean, the concept of fundamentalism it's got sort of a negative connotation, but all it really meant was is that they were the people that held to the five solas, right? Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what it meant. But we all think of that guy who's up there screaming and yelling at people, so people are turned away from doctrine and the fundamentals. Also, churches today seem to be more concerned with trying to be culturally relevant versus being biblically oriented in the tr literate in the truth. Do we see that so much with the fact that most churches today, many of the churches, I won't say most, they're more concerned about entertaining the masses, right, uh, and, and fulfilling that sort of desire. What's in it for me for many of the folks attending? But I'm also going to suggest to you that in good churches, there's been sort of a pervasive misunderstanding of some, a meaning of some key words within the gospel, and we're going to cover both of those today. Um, I think we need to make sure that we have to understand when we certain words that have been translated several times, we have to look at what those words meant at the time it was written to the audience it was written to. Okay? If you were to go talk to our grandparents, right, and you said the word cool, what would they think that meant? They would think, ooh, I'm hot. Right? It's, it's, you know, I feel better, right? Today, that's not what it means for most people. So that's why we have to be careful with this. So today, and also I want to just say, I think the, the playing field of trying to share the gospel has changed dramatically over the last few years. We see that materialism, evolution, relativism, are all very sort of the worldview that the majority of the folks hold. And it makes it much more difficult than it did 20, 30 years ago when most people really held towards, even if they weren't believers, held majority of what would be considered a Judeo-Christian ethic. So it's changed a little more difficult. So today I want to speak on what is the gospel. Because I see our congregation as being strong believers and really sort of the backbone of the folks who can share the gospel effectively with other folks, but I want to make sure that we understand what is the gospel message. What's the gospel message? <laughs> Believe it or not, there's a lot of confusion on what the gospel is, and it creates a lot of debate in sort of evangelical circles. I believe that we have <clears throat> made the gospel less effective today 
in our current culture because of two things. We've either complicated the message or we've minimized the message. <clears throat> How have we complicated the message? Well, all you have to do is go to some of the more, I'll say, orthodox churches, and you've got a lot of legalism built into it, right? But that's not to say that some of the, the, the Protestant churches are doing the same thing. And I'll also suggest to you there's a lot of what I'll call, particularly in seminaries and theological writings, what I'm going to call a lot of intellectualism and pride in it. What I'd like to do real quick is to read some descriptions of the gospel out of this book called What's the Gospel with Greg Gilbert? And a lot of what I'm going to talk about comes out of this. But, and what I'd like you to do is as I read these, okay, um, I'd like you to um, put on your mind that you're, a no, you're one of those nuns. That you don't really have any, you know, dog in the fight. You know, don't really necessarily, um, you know, have a, a desire for, for learning about Christ. But let me read some of these for you. And as I do it, when I'm done, I want you to ask you, do you understand what the gospel is from these descriptions? And would you be convinced to become a follower of Jesus Christ? These are all comments about the gospel that prominent religious, these are actually all Protestant, Protestant religious leaders have described the gospel as, okay? The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? That's the gospel according to that fellow. The message of Jesus may be called the most revolutionary of our time, the radical revolution, revolutionary empire of God is here, advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. It's time to change your thinking. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Believe me, follow me, believe this is good news so you can learn to live by it and be part of the revolution. The good news is that God's face will always be turned towards you regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and has turned in your direction looking for you. <clears throat> good news, God is becoming king. Becoming. And he's doing it through Jesus, and therefore, whew, God's justice, God's peace, God's world is going to be renewed. And in the middle of all that, of course, it's good news for you and me. But that's the derivative from, or the corollary, of the good news, which is a message about Jesus that has a second-order effect on me and you and us. The gospel is not itself about you, or this sort of a person, or this could happen to you. That's the result of the gospel rather than the gospel. Salvation is the result of the gospel, not the center of the gospel itself. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus in two senses. It's the proclamation announced by Jesus, the arrival of God's realm of possibility in the midst of human struggles of possibility. But it's also the proclamation about Jesus, the good news that is dying and rising, that in dying and rising, he made the kingdom he proclaimed available to us. And there's the last one. 
and I will get a sip of my water in a second. As a Christian, I am simply trying to orient myself around living a particular kind of life, the kind of way that Jesus taught is possible. And I think that that way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. Over time, when you have purposely tried to live the way of Jesus, you start noticing something deeper going on. You begin to realize the reason that this is the best way to live is that it's rooted in profound truths about how the world is. You find yourself living more and more in tune with the ultimate reality. You are more and more in sync with how the universe, how the universe is in its deepest levels. The first Christians announced the way of Jesus as good news. How many folks that would turn you to go say, I want to become a believer in Jesus Christ? Those are all pretty prominent people who wrote those things. Now, don't get me wrong, there's an element of truth in all of those. But they've just made it so complicated and confusing for the folks, right? How have we simplified the message? Well, at the risk of offending some folks, I would tell you the misuse of the sinner's prayer. I think there's a lot of people who've walked down an aisle, wrotely repeated a prayer, and then just went away, and they think they're saved because they simply said a little prayer. Or raised their hand in the back of a pew. And also, I think we've, as churches, allowed what I call cheap grace. Just accept Jesus, and then you can go do whatever you want, live however you want, right? In other words, I'll add that to the life that I've already determined, and that's not what it is at all. I tend to show that much of our oversimplification is due to the misunderstanding of meaning of some key words in the concepts of justification. So I'm going to ask you another question. Is there a single verse that contains all the elements of the gospel in the Bible? Or is it a composite of multiple scriptures from which we fully understand the gospel? Let me suggest to you that it's the composite of multiple scriptures that we understand the gospel. And that's really consistent with the Bible. The fact that the Bible, the entire Bible, is a message concerning the divine plan of God for mankind. But it's also consistent with Jesus' words on the road to Emmaus. What did he say? Started from the beginning and showed how everything pointed to him. So let's look at the earliest Gospel creed within the Bible. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-6. And it's believed by most of the scholars that that creed was written within one year after the death of Christ. Okay? First, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also, so it's talking about the gospel, also you have received and wherein ye stand, by which ye also are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, it's interesting, some of the other translations say of first importance, and that's what, kind of the meaning behind it. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which is also received, how that, and here it is, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then it goes on to say, and he was seen by Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen by about 500 people, a brethren at once, all of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some have fallen to sleep. So, did you notice something about that early creed? 
that seems to be maybe missing from what we would probably put more emphasis on? Didn't talk at all about the Calvary on the cross. Interesting, but you have to recognize, you know, I've heard people say, well, it's because, you know, the cross was so offensive, they didn't want to offend people. But I actually heard this, and I think this is a much better explanation of that. Who was he speaking to? Who were they teaching at that time? They were talking to the Jews, right? And when Jesus was saying he was making atonement for their sins, the first thing a Jew thinks about is what? The priest, when he went in to make the atonement, right? He went into the Holy of Holies, and if it was accepted, he came out. However, not all the priests came out, right? Sometimes they were stricken dead. And what did that tell the folks? The sacrifice wasn't accepted. So to the Jew... Particularly at that time, and I think we under, really don't really sometimes give the importance to this, the fact that Jesus rose again was highly, highly important to the Jews. And it should be important to us that God accepted that sacrifice. And that's what they were trying to emphasize with that to the folks. You know? Why do you think it was so effective? Early on, because we read about 5,000 you know, people you know, coming to Christ. And we see in verse 5, it was shared to them by people who are eyewitnesses, right? The facts about Jesus were well known in that area. Not everybody necessarily believed it, but they were well known. And to the Jews, they were seeing that Jesus had actually been fulfilling Scripture, which they talked about here. But does it by itself contain all the elements and aspects of, of the gospel? I would share with you it's a summary of the full understanding of the gospel, but there are some specifics about the gospel that I would tell you are not directly in there. They're implied. It's kind of like when we take communion. It was a symbol to help us remember the entire gospel. So let's look at God's Word to uncover this. Let me take a sip. Darlene, much better. <laughs> After the water, I'm much better. <clears throat> okay, so John 3.16, right? The best known gospel verse, right? It's probably the one used most often. I've used it. I suspect many of you have used it when you tried to share the gospel, right? Yet does it contain the entirety of the gospel message? Or is it hit the high points and is sort of a summary? And can we err when sharing the gospel when we assume that the person understands all those implied truths about the gospel in it? Why do I say that? Go ahead, Mark, move the step one. Apologist Greg Kokel says that we should never read just a single verse. And it's really true for John 3.16. Because you better understand what is being in, the, in John 3.16 when you look at verses 
17 and 18, right? For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that, he that believeth not is condemned already, because the faith he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. There's so much in the Bible where we capture things, but we have to remember to keep it in the context. We need to be looking at within the immediate context, and then we need to be looking at it relative to the entire Word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's look at some additional verses. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he saith, Believe on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, is not come into condemnation, but is passed unto, from death unto life. But as many as received him, to them he gave the, the power to become sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Obviously, belief is central to the gospel. Right? Yet in these verses alone, where it's, we're talking about belief, is everything about the gospel included in those? It's obviously a key element of the gospel, a focal of the gospel. So I think it's important that we understand what the word believe means. Is it simply I mentally assent to something and agree with it? In our Western culture, that's what believe means. I believe that there is a planet out there called Jupiter. Okay, I... It's a fact. I agree with it. Okay? I have no reason to doubt it, right? Is that what the word believe means in the Bible right now when we read these passages? Let me, let me share a quick story with you. Back at my last church, as an elder, and for membership, they would you'd go through a class on, on the doctrines, you know, the, the statement of faith of the church. And then they had an interview to make sure that the people who were coming here were truly saved, you know. You know, we let people sometimes walk up, raise their hand, and they could have been a Buddhist, but, you know, we don't want to be a member, right? Not our church, but in churches they do that. And they would have an interview with the person about their salvation. And I was sitting there, and I was kind of the new guy. And a more senior fellow was leading it, and he asked the guy, so tell me about how you became saved. And he said, oh, well, you know, Jesus... Uh, uh, came down from heaven, he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, he died on the cross and paid for the sins of the world, and now he is raised and he's gone up with his father. Okay. And this guy, Mark, his first name was Mark, was very wise. He didn't you know, go and challenge the guy directly. He told him a little story, and he told the story about he was driving with his teenage daughter, and he asked her the same question, who's Jesus? And she gave him essentially the same answer, right? He came down, you know, he was born a baby in a manger and died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again on the third day. And, and he, then he asked her, said to her, his daughter, wow, it sounds like you and the demons believe the same thing. Pretty shocking. And then he looked at her and said, Tell me who Jesus is to you. And then she got it, and she said, oh, you know, Dad, I, 
If it wasn't for Jesus, I would be on my way for he- to hell because I'm a sinner, and he paid the price for me. Right? And she went on to it. The guy he was talking to, that Mark, kind of got the idea of what we were after. But it's really important, right? The fact that it's a critical part of it is who is Jesus to that person. It's not just knowing some intellectual facts. In fact, the word for believe in the Bible you see there is pistio, right? And it's very interesting because the word actually means to place oneself securely under. Or it could mean to rest in completely. Or it can mean to submit totally. Right? None of those sound like a cognitive belief, do they? <clears throat> to believe is to have a committed assurance to put one's complete trust in and to accept as absolutely true. Essentially, it means that you have trust and faith. Why, well, how did we get mixed up in this? Where people think believing is just, well, I believe those facts, so I've been on my way to heaven. <clears throat> Well, Western culture, the Greeks, changed how people basically, I won't say thought, but how words like this were dealt with. In Eastern culture, they did not separate the intellect from the emotional and the will. So when you said you believe something, you intellectually, to them, you intellectually believed it. You recognized it applied to you, and you accepted it and applied to you, and then you made it the basis of your life, and you acted upon it, right? The best way to describe that is, is and although this is not 100% true, when we think of love, we think of what? Look at my wife, and I love her. In my heart, I love her. And then I act on that because of that love for my wife, right? But in the Western culture, we split all of that. And it's helped. I mean, we've been able to discover things because we've been able to break it out, right? But... When we say the word believe in Western culture, most of the folks we talk to, they think, I just got to believe those facts. I uh, used to team teach with a guy named Steve Abdu who was born in Syria. His father was a pastor there. And Steve uh, would, it's interesting, his, his, while he was in the U.S., the uh, terrorists shot an RPG into his bedroom. But uh, um, Steve would tell you, when somebody made a decision for Christ, it wasn't they went out and said, oh, I'm gonna, I think I'll go get baptized. It was just you did it because you were, that's the way they thought, that if I'm there, I'm going to make that full commitment to it. David Jeremiah captured this well when he said, belief requires the whole being, mind, emotion, and will. The mind being, being an agreement or assent to. The emotion, or some people say the soul, means the application, and the will means to act in accordance. It's the basis of one's life. So it's important that we understand the biblical meaning of belief involves the whole person, not just the intellect. It's much more than just, okay, I believe those facts about Jesus. Let me give you a little, I'll say, example of what I'm talking about. Snagger Falls in the picture there. And there is a famous tightrope walker. And he had done things in Paris and London and other places. And they strung a tightrope across the Niagara Falls in the Canadian side. And he walked across. And then he walked across and sat down, made a little area he could sit on, and he actually cooked himself breakfast. And he came back. And then he juggled across it. And then he pushed the wheelbarrow across it 
with a bunch of rocks. And he went to the crowd and said, how many people think I could push a person across this wire in this wheelbarrow? And everybody, oh yes, we believe you could do that. We believe you could do that. Guess what his next question was? Who volunteered? He could hear crickets. So actually I got one of his... I guess, helpers, and went and did it and came back. He came back a second time and asked him, so who will volunteer now? Guess what? Those crickets didn't leave. That's what we're talking about. When you really truly believe something, right, you apply it to yourself and you act upon it. And I know some, and I've been in churches when I was growing up, oh, Joe just, he said this, and he, oh, welcome to, to, you know, the family of God. Did he really believe? Not so sure. Right? We shared you some verses earlier, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I, I would suggest to you that it might be interesting for you to look at these verses and kind of some, replace the word believe with those definitions of pisteo. And they said, to place oneself securely under the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. A little different meaning, right? A little deeper meaning. Early, early I say unto you, hear that heareth my word, and rest completely in him that sent me, hath everlasting life. Right? That's the depth of what those words truly are implying. And yet in our culture, we've taken them to mean, oh, I just got to believe those facts. It's important we understand the biblical meaning of belief and that it involves the whole person, not just the intellects. Let's look at a couple more. Let's go to another verse. Maybe it catches it a little better. Romans 8, or excuse me, 10, 8 through 11. But what saith it? The word is nigh in thee, even in thy mouth, in thy heart. And, it, and that is the word of faith, which we preach, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart one man believeth unto righteousness, and in the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the Scripture saith, whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Notice, in this verse, they talked about the heart. They talked about the mind. And the confessing of the mouth is actually an act. That confessing of the mouth is not a, I said it one time, it means that I continually confess from the mouth to folks who need to hear. This understanding of believing with the whole person is consistent with James' description of what true belief entails. James 1, 2 through 25, but, but, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Some of the translations will say mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this is the man that is blessed. So relative to today's cultural misunderstanding of believe, I really suggest that the words faith and trust really better describe what that meaning is, of what the Bible means to believe. And the reason I say that is, is to us to say believe is, is who's in control? Me. I believe those lights will come on. Okay, I'm making the determination. When you talk about faith and trust, it's really focusing on something else. 
that you're putting your trust and faith in. So, Some verses with uh, faith and trust. Excuse me, with, with faith. Right? We can look at these. The word here, faith, is the word pistis, which is the verb of the same verb for belief. And it means assurance and confidence. David Jeremiah, Dr. David Jeremiah wrote, faith says that what God has promised will happen, and it's so certain that it's almost as if it's already happened. Faith treats things that are hoped for as reality, and it's based on the confidence in the one who made the promise. To have faith involves one's total being and certainty of the truth. It's a total assurance and commitment to God and his promises that he will do what he has said he will do, and we will not have faith in our faith. One of the issues that comes out, people have faith in their faith. Well, I did this, therefore I'm saved. No, I'm saved because of what Christ has done and what he's going to do for me. Schofield said, faith is never the ground of justification. It's the means or the channel through which God's grace can impute to the sinner the righteousness of Christ. So let's look at what the gospel tells us about the one for whom we are to have faith, Jesus Christ, so that, he can rest, so that we can rest assured in total trust with him. Let me share the key aspects of Greg Gilbert's book, but he bases this on the first four chapters of Romans, of what is the gospel. And the gospel answers four critical questions. Who made us and whom are we accountable to? What's our problem? In other words, why are we in trouble? What's God's solution to the problem? What's He done to help us? And how do I come to be included in salvation? How can this be good news for me? And I've seen this uh, other... uh, theologians or commentators have used it, but this is sort of the flow that really the gospel goes. It starts with God. Understand God, what man has done, what Christ has done, and then the response with regards to that. So, I'm going to go a little quicker than I have. I apologize. We're getting time-wise, so I may not read all the verses, but I promise you if you want these, I'll send them to you. Um, Okay. So who made us and to whom are we accountable? We're accountable to our Creator God. Romans 1, we see that God exists and He's made Himself known. 1, 19-20. Genesis 1, 26-27. God made us in His image. Therefore, we are accountable to God and the, His attributes. Genesis 2:16-17. God set expectations for man by which He would be held accountable. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God will judge according to his established expectations. And Romans 1, 18, and then also Romans 2, 5, God will exercise his wrath on those who do not adhere to his expectations. Why do so many gospel verses seem not to include this attribute when people share the gospel? Well, you've got to realize in the verses when they were written, right, the culture at that time 
people didn't challenge the concept that there was an all-powerful God. They might have had the wrong concept, right? But the cultures at that time, all, there's a God, and he's created everything, and I'm responsible to him, right? And also, remember, these verses are written to believers, right, and to the Jewish folks, right? They automatically, those folks started out with the recognition that there is an all-powerful, accountable, uh, a creator to whom we're accountable, right? But why is it important that this be considered in our gospel presentation? Well, first of all, it establishes the basis of the gospel. It's the foundation. If there's no God, you don't need a gospel. Right? If we're not made in His image, there's no requirement to act consistent with it. And if there's no accountability, then nothing can be condemned. No, no behavior whatsoever. It's also important because it allows us to understand our relationship relative to God. Right? We are to be fearful, the Bible tells us that, and, and awe. Right? You know, I, I had the picture of uh, Niagara Falls up, and uh, if, I, if you've ever been there, you walk up on the Canadian side and there's a little flimsy fence. And you look over that side and it's about 10 feet of water, 8 to 10 feet of water going over the side. And you just are like, you know, I was, when I did that, I was in my 20s and I thought I was a pretty tough guy, right? I have to admit, I was scared for a second, right? But then I looked at it and I just realized, wow, this is amazing. This is so beautiful. I was caught up in the awe of it, right? But I had to recognize first how powerful and dangerous it was before I got to that point. Same, same with God, right? Um, our culture, though, there's a very low level of belief in God, and we need to reinstill to them the idea that there is a God, and he's much more powerful than you. Humanism and relativism, we spoke about that, are prominent in our society. People don't think they're accountable to anybody but themselves, and they've completely rejected truth that there is any truth. They'll say, Richard has his truth, Robert has his truth, and Steve has his truth, and they're all equally valid, even if they contradict. Foolishness, right? So for the rest of the gospel message, this foundation needs to be in place, whether it's explicit or implicit. Essentially, it's the starting place, just like the Bible, right? What's the Bible's first verse say? In the beginning, what? God, right? Right? We should remember that. And it's crucial we do this, particularly with gnomes, right? But also other religious folks. You know, the Hindus believe in multiple gods, not an old countable one. The atheists obviously don't either. Interesting, the Muslims and the Jews, you don't have to prove them there's a, an all, a God to who they're accountable. They just have the wrong concept of who that God is, right? You have to help them with that. So what's our problem? In other words, are we in trouble? Well, in Romans 1, 18 and 21, we're out with, it, with that excuse and subject to his wrath. Romans 1, 28 to 31, we did not acknowledge God. We violated his standard. Romans 3.23, most of you know this one, all have sinned and all are guilty, right? Fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59.2, our sin has separated us from God. Isaiah 2.2, as sinners, we are followers of Satan and spiritually dead. That was a little tough, right, to tell somebody, you know? You're a follower of Satan if you're not a follower of Christ right now. And Romans 1.32 and Romans 6.23, the accountability and the penalty for sin is what? Death. 
The truth is, we've rebelled against God. Whether anybody we want to admit it or not, before before we were saved and the folks who weren't saved, we've all rebelled against God. Greg Kokel, who I'll share you another good book because he tells you how to deal with when you try to give the gospel when people have objections, how to kind of respond to those well. Um, said this, we are subjects who revolted, rebels who are now morally corrupted. We are guilty, and for this we must answer. Before we can offer the salvation message to anybody, we need to establish the reality of the need for them to have to be saved, and it has to be within the gospel. Because, again, Kokel says this, we're in debt, not to a standard, not to a rule, not to a law, but to a person, to the one we've offended with our disobedience, and this is not good news since our guilt has severe consequences. There's, there's an area here we have to be sensitive to because a lot of Christians can sort of minimize this terrible part of the fact that God's wrath is going to be upon us. They might confuse sin with sin's effects. You'll hear, oh, wait, don't you want to be saved from the guilt or the emptiness? And they say, okay, well, I'll take that. I'll just take that part of it and away I go instead of really understanding that they were totally um, sinful. Or it's just a broken relationship. It's a simple disagreement. I just need to say I'm sorry and I can go on my way. Or confusing sins with specific sins. You know, oh, if you stop that, then Christ will save you. But probably the more, I'll say, prevalent is selective acceptance of God's attributes. How many of you have heard people say, well, God is love, right? I go to a Bible study every Monday morning, and the fellow's mother is 100 years old. And he's been witnessing to her for years, and this is her argument. God is love. I'm a good person. If God is love, God would never send me to hell. I don't need to accept Jesus Christ. Or you'll hear him say things like, well, God would never do that to me. You know, that's the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is not a wrathful God. Wrong. We see those when it comes to this part of the gospel message. So is everything about the gospel good news? Now that you're all sitting there going, ooh, under the table. Right? Greg Gilbert said this better than I can, so I'm going to just reiterate what he said. Now, strictly speaking, those first two points are not really good news at all. In fact, they're pretty bad news. That I rebelled against the holy and judging God who made me is not a happy thought, but an important one because it paves the way for the good news. That makes sense if you think about it. To have someone to say to you, I'm coming to save you, is not really good news unless you believe you need to be saved. All right? Robert, I know you've been here a long while. And you're standing out there and Amelia Island in the water up to your waist. It's a beautiful day. It's a sunny day. And you've been out there for the last 15 minutes just enjoying yourself. right? And suddenly I come running up and say, hey, come here, I need to save you. What do you think? What a nut, right? If suddenly I come up and say, Robert, there's a big... Whitehead, or, or you know, uh, shark, white shark coming up behind you. Get out of the water quick. I suspect you're going to hightail it out of there, right? But you have to first, before you're talking about saving somebody, convince them that there is a need to be saved, right? And it's consistent with God's word. 
I mentioned this earlier, but Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despite wisdom and instruction. Right? I, I won't say I laugh, but it, it bothers me because I've heard many, many a minister say, Oh, that's not really fear. That's just reverence. You look that word up. In original language, guess what it means? First meaning, fear. What's the second meaning? Terror. Third meaning, to abhor horribly. The last word, in Christian world, it can mean that reverence, right? Why is fear the right meaning there? Well, if you're an unsaved person, at the beginning of knowledge is learning about Christ and God. Guess what? When you find out who God is and what you've done in those first two things we've talked about, you better be afraid. I mean, if you're not, you're not too bright. I mean, but it then, just like the Niagara Falls thing I shared with you, it moves to that awe and reverence for God. Right? But for the unbeliever, that ought to be something that is a little unnerving for them. So, spent a long time talking about the bad news of the good news. Let's talk about the good news of the good news. Okay, this is where we often start, and it's not necessarily wrong because you may be talking to a person who's, who's really quite spiritually mature. They just don't understand things. Okay? <clears throat> What's God's solution to the problem? How has he acted to save us? The solution to sin is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, we know that's the first prophecy, right? John 1, 1 and, 1, and John 1.14 and Colossians 2.9, the Messiah would be both divine and human. I, I, I could have put some Old Testament verses, but I put these here for you because it's easier with someone who doesn't really know the Bible well to start with the New Testament versus the Old. But there's verses that very well support all of these in the Old Testament. The Messiah would be born of a virgin by means of the Holy Spirit. We can see that in Matthew 1, 20, 23. He would, be, he would live a sinless life, yet would pay for the sins of the world, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And then despite being sinners, God loved us and sent His Son to die on the cross for us. And we see that in Romans 5, 8. Right? Questions can arise, though, when you share this with folks, right? You know, well, if God wanted this loving relationship, was the cross plan B? Well, no. You go all the way back to Genesis, right? And we can show them that that was not plan B. That, oops, Satan tricked me, right? You can answer whether, well, why did Jesus have to be, was he really God or was he, you know, just a man that got infused with some spirit? You need to be prepared for some of these questions because they've been told all sorts of things. And hopefully some of these verses here are helpful for that for you. So then we say, what is God's solution to the problem? How has He acted to save us? Well, we know that the solution to sin is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? By dying on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of believers so that the penalty of their sin was paid. He raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. That's the showing that those, the payment or, or, or the price was accepted, the sacrifice. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ exchanged our unrighteousness with His righteousness so that we may stand holy before God. I'll save that one for another time. Um, 
but it had to do with communion and to the bread and the wine, and that will be our, well, I'll save that for another time for us. Romans 10, 9, 9 and 13, and Colossians 1, 12 to 14, those who believe will be saved from the penalty of sin. There's no other way to be saved but through Jesus Christ, and it can only be accomplished through the power of God. Right? A lot of questions can come up about that. Well, does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead? I spoke a little bit about that. Um, Will God send to hell those who've never heard the gospel? You need to be prepared for some of these that you're going to get asked on that. And doesn't what I do really count for salvation? Isn't there something I can do to get saved? And we need to be prepared to know it's only through the power of God that we're saved. We should never forget, though, that the cross is the heart of the gospel. And we need to focus on that with the folks, right? 1 Corinthians 1, 24, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. It's interesting that word means human wisdom, which is very interesting. But we preach Christ crucifies unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, And brother, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech, kind of like me, or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ crucified. Paul, to Paul, that was the, what he was focused on. Now, please don't understand, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's only through the cross that anyone is saved. But to get to the cross, we need to make sure individuals understand what they're believing and what it means to believe. The entire gospel is important because it shows that God's ultimate reason for providing our means of salvation was for his glory. It was his plan from the beginning. So now let's look at the last element here. How do I myself, right here, right now, how do I come to be included in salvation? What makes this good news to me and not somebody else? Well, if we read, right? Well, from Greg Gilbert's thing, he says it's to believe and repent, and, and we look at these verses. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in the heart, that is the word of faith, which we preach, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in their heart, and God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For Scripture says, whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. John five twenty four. Very, verily I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but pass from death to life. And in John 1, 12, but as many received him, to them he gave the power to come to sons of mine, even to them that believe on his name. So obviously we need to believe. And remember, we talked about believe is not just of the mind, it's the mind, the heart, and the will, the entire person. Um, but it brings us to the other word that we have up there. And that is the word repent. Jesus associated the word repent with one's salvation. He instructed listeners to repent. 
as did Peter and Paul. We can see in Matthew and Mark and Luke, that's Jesus saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Okay. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So what is it? Repent or is it believe? When we think of repentance, we all often probably have heard it said it's a turning 180 degrees and no longer pursuing or forsaking the sins in our lives, right? And while that's true, unfortunately, it's often conveyed as some sort of change in behavior or action that we initiate to please God. As if God is evaluating us to determine if we've done an acceptable work that's worthy of being saved. It's all too often conveyed as adding a legalistic work requirement to being saved. Yet a change in behavior is not what the Greek word means at all. The Greek word is metaneo. And it means to change one's mind. It means to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend the abhorrence of one's past sins. Repentance is strictly within the mind. We have to remember, right, first, that belief involves the total being, the mind, the heart, and the will. I suggest to you that repentance is simply that element of belief in which we accept the gospel as true and appropriate it for ourselves. Both belief and repent are an aspect of one's salvation at the time of salvation. The difference being belief focuses on the object of one's salvation while repent focuses on the subjective impact on one's salvation. Repentance is the aspect of our salvation in which our minds are turned from living according to our own will and submitting our lives to the will of God. The 180-degree turn occurs instantaneously at the moment of salvation and is genuine if it is seen in the ongoing changes in our behavior. The order is that submission to Christ and salvation, and then we see the behavior that we are not pursuing. It's not, oh, I'll clean up my act and I'll behave differently and then I can get saved. It's the exact opposite. To repent is to realize who you are in relation to God and through the power of the Holy Spirit move from a self-willed mindset to one's life, for one's life to a mindset submitted to the will of God for one's life. This change in this new mindset is what is repentance. And think of this. It's so consistent with God's Word. What's 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature, right? Bears a creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, right? I like the quote from Alistair Begg says, all of us has decided for or against the rule of Jesus in our lives. Either he reigns in our lives or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, we do, right? So, As authentic followers of Jesus Christ, to believe and to repent are describing our salvation at that moment from the perspective of two aspects of our salvation. For those of you who are in Truman's theology class, remember all those different words we went through? 
reconciliation, right? We, we talked about all those are actually talking about your salvation, but the different aspects associated with adoption and whatnot. Same is true here. Okay? Why don't you look at the quote you see up here at uh, um, Greg Gilbert. i take another quick sip. Jesus' message to his listeners was, repent and believe in the gospel. If faith is turning to Jesus and relying on him for salvation, repentance is the flip side of that same coin. He's talking about salvation. It is turning away from sin, hating it, and resolving by God's strength to forsake it, even as we turn to him in faith. Yeah, at first glance, the first time I read it, I thought that was a little contradictory, but no, he's actually talking... He's also talking about the exact same thing. He's speaking about the two simultaneous aspects of one's salvation. So, we look at these verses, and, and I won't read through them again because I, I know I'm running a little bit over. Um, and if anybody wants this presentation, I'll, I'll send it to them. From the time Jesus began to preach, he said, repent, right? All of these things. If you look at that definition, suddenly these verses come alive a little bit differently. He's actually asking them to believe and repent all in one, become saved, right? But please don't misunderstand me again. When we sin as believers, do we need to repent? Yes, right? However, positionally, our repentance is complete before God when we are saved. Yet, just like sanctification, though, provisionally, though positionally complete, practically it's still progressive throughout the life of the believer. So yes, when I sin, I need to repent, but my eternal positional relationship with God is sealed as being repented. Uh-huh. So, are there any passages that might contain all the elements in one verse? Um, in the Bible, I think in certain passages you'll find all of that, right? But it's tough to find it all in one verse. Okay? Um, I even looked at the gospel presentations in the Bible that you have Peter's and uh, Peter's two sermons and Paul's, and they 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 imply some of them, but not all of them are in, the, in, in all of these. I mean, some of them are better than others with regards to it. Each of these approaches to the gospel, though, is is slightly different in their perspective depending on the audience. Yet each includes certain key elements of the gospel, whether they be implied or explicit. Why do you think God didn't put in the Bible someplace, this is how you present the gospel? Step one. Step two. Step three. Well, it's not formula delivery, right? It's not some methodology. It has to be tailored to the individual, particularly where they are spiritually. And really understanding where they are with, with, in their life and what are their sort of worldview and, and, and key values that they hold. So what is the gospel message? It's God. Man's what he's done in relation to God what God has done in relation to man through Christ, and then what man's response to that is. We talked about there's these four key areas here. Who made us? Who are we accountable to? Again, you're talking to somebody who's been in church all their life, and they do believe in, you know, that's 
maybe something you're not spending a ton of time on, but you better make sure they understand that and it's, under, it's sort of understood. Right? What's our problem? What's God's solution? And what do I need to do? So let's go back to John 3.16. Remember I put that up originally and I had all the lines through it and I probably should have taken it out in that first slide. But if you look at it, where's God found in this? Well, right off the get-go, for God, right? Love the world, right? But man, if you look, it talks about he's condemned already. Right? Christ, he gave his son, right? That we might be saved and then it talks about believing. That's why I say context is always important, and I do agree with Mr. Kokel where he says, be careful of using just a single verse with regards to this. Let me share, you're probably saying, oh my gosh, now I'm afraid to share the gospel. Let me share one of the best little summaries I've I've run across, and this is in a book by a guy named Mark Devers. He's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. See, something good can come out of D.C. So how do we begin positively? For starters, put yourself in the background and preach Christ crucified. Clarify what the true gospel is, what the required response is, and what it means to be a Christian. And here's where he gives the gospel. Make sure people know God is the, our holy creator and righteous judge and that, that we have all sinned against him, offending his holy character, alienating ourselves from him, and exposing ourselves to his righteous anger. That he has sent Christ to die the death that we deserve for our sins. That Christ's death and resurrection is the only way to be reconciled to the one true God. And that what we must respond to this good news by repenting of our sins and believing in the gospel if we want to be forgiven by God, reconciled to him, and saved from the wrath to come. Make sure people know that they must preserve in must. Preserve in a lifestyle of repentance and belief, displaying an increasingly loving and holy lifestyle that proves that we are his disciples. I know I ran over a little bit, and I apologize for that, but I think it's an important topic because I think too often our effectiveness in reaching the lost is as we don't truly know the best what the gospel is and the best ways to present it to folks. And I would encourage us. To, to, to really uh, take some time and think about that with regards to it. So those are the essentials. But let me just go one more. Our obligation to share, First Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you in meekness. Always means not when we feel like it, and when he talks about be ready, he said that is in a form of a directive. It's not a suggestion. When you feel like it, it'd be nice if you did it. No, it's a directive. Be ready. You need to be doing it. And then if we look at the Great Commission, right? A lot of people start at verse 19, right? And that's good because the word go there is actually a command. It's not... Some of you, the pastor, maybe a couple of people who are gifted. No, it's to everybody. Go. It's a command to go, right? And to teach the nations. To teach the nations is talking about share the gospel there, right? With regards to that. But I want to go back to verse 18 for you too because I know some people, well, yeah, but some people are made you know, pastors, some are evangelists, whatever. 
It says, Jesus came and spake of them, saying, All power is given unto me. He has all the authority to tell us, and he is telling us, go. And that go means when that opportunity, then God presents that opportunity when you can share the gospel with somebody. And it may not be the first time you interact with them. But we have an obligation if we're followers of Jesus Christ that we are going to go and share God's word with them. So I would challenge you. You know, who is it that while I've been talking, maybe God's laid on your heart that, you know, I probably should share some time with this person. Or, you know, I've got this relative. Remember we talked about the, the virgins, right? That they, the relatives and friends. I've got these relatives that I don't think they know the Lord. You know, be prepared. Maybe the next time there's a family get-together, be prepared that God may open that door for you, but we need to be prepared to be sharing the word. So let me close in a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord.